0: As this year winds down, I think I could use a drink. How about you? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Whether you prefer craft beer, some Russian vodka, a dram of scotch, or maybe even a little fruit brandy, we've got some special cheer for you in the hour ahead. Coming up, we'll look at how our friends in the Slavic countries enjoy a drink without getting a hangover. There is idea of drinking it without getting drunk. The point is not to get drunk. Lisa Dickey enjoyed a few vodkas with friends she made on her travels across Russia. She always received a warm welcome as an American, but on her last trip, she found things had cooled a bit.
1: Because I do think that, you know, the relations between our countries have come a little bit back around to feeling more like a Cold War relationship again.
0: And Chris Santella tells us how the craft beer revolution is taking hold even in the most unexpected places. Italy now, I think there's up to almost 600 brewers. Let me be your designated driver in the hour ahead. Come along. It's travel with Rick Steves. What are you having to welcome in the new year? Coming up, Chris Santella tells us some of the best ways to enjoy a cold one from his 50 places to drink beer before you die book. And we'll enjoy a wee dram for Old Lang Syne in Edinburgh. It's also a time people are taking stock of themselves and resolving to change, and maybe toasting it with a little vodka. Author Lisa Dickey shares the changes she observed among everyday Russians on trips she took across the country over the last 20 years. Let's start today's travel with Rick Steves in Bosnia and the Czech Republic, where a different kind of spirit is popular. Our friends Amir Televachirovich and Jana Hrankova join us now to teach us how to drink like a Slav. Amir, Jana, Nastravia. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.
2: You mentioned uh, Russia, and uh, we were generally talking about the Slavic populations. That's something huge, right? And they are divided historically and culturally into the three groups, Eastern Slavics, Southern Slavics, and Western Slavics. So I can speak for the Southern Slavics that was a part of former Yugoslavia.
0: And Russia would be Slavic, Eastern, but part of the
2: East. Yes, Eastern Slavic and Czech Republic and Slovakia, and maybe partly Poland would be Western Slavic. Western okay. Slavic. In the yeah. Tiana's territory. Yeah. Okay. Yes, the Southern Slavs, they inherited a lot of things from different invaders of the region. They, they're occupying mostly the Balkan region. And that's where the Ottomans, Byzantines, Habsburgs, and Venetians uh, had their own meeting spot. Now, Bosnia, where I come from, is in the heart, in the middle of all of that. That was the meeting spot of all these four empires and civilizations. And they brought different influences, including the drinks. So the word rakia, you've been to Turkey, I think, like, so you know their national drink, uh, Raku, They pronounce it a little differently. Rocky, Just right. like vodka is one drink. But the, in the Balkans, because of the variety of the smaller tribal nations, let's call them like that, If you order rakiju in Turkey, you would get only one drink, one type of drink. Right. If you order it in Bosnia or elsewhere in the Balkans, the avoider would ask you which kind of rakia, with a little different pronunciations. And then you need to say either slivovica, which is made of plum, or jabukovica, made of apple, or kruškovača, made of pear, or višnjevača, made of cherries, or travalica, made of herbs, and so on. So it's a name of the type of the certain... So these are like like, uh, fruit
0: brandies, is that right? Yes,
2: yes. mostly they they are made of fruit. Now, there is something we're talking about what to drink, but here it's important to mention how to drink it. Mm -hmm. I think it's the ancient Ottoman tradition, especially in Bosnia, southern Serbia, partly Macedonia and Albania, still today it's present. uh, How to drink one of these flavors without getting drunk? Mm -hmm. So, in the evening, after dinner, there is an old uh, Bosnian word inherited from the Ottoman times called akshamluk. That's something like kind of relaxing in the evening. Akshamluk. Yeah. We would sit, people would sit uh, on the table. Uh, Even those who don't drink uh, strong liquors, they would still join because it's a time of relaxation. There would be some music, uh, similar to blues, so it's not dancing music, it's it's relaxation music. Mm -hmm. You would have the uh, whole plate with a very salty cheese smoked meat, possibly. And then you would have rakia, either slivovica or jabukovac, one of these, you know, depends what kind of fruit you would prefer. You would take a little sip of that. Then every time you take a sip, you would take a bite of this very salty cheese. But very slowly and with a lot of space in between taking each sip because you need to talk, you need to converse, to comment the music, maybe even to sing to the tunes that is going around, if it's live music, even better. And then at some point, you would drink a lot of that, but you wouldn't get drunk. You would be relaxed, maybe tipsy, but not drunk Mm -hmm. Uh, because the cheese is so salty that would make um, Mm. balance in your organism because a lot of salt, you know, because of that. I was
0: just American. in Bulgaria and Romania, and I was mm-hmm. struck by the fact that they will have their rakia straight through the meal. And yeah, it, was... it is as
2: operative or digestive. Interesting thing that in a Muslim culture that is present a lot uh, in Albania and Bosnia, particularly in the Balkans, of course, uh, alcohol is prohibited, but many people don't know that actually alcohol is Arabic word from alcohol. Anyway, uh, there is idea of drinking it without getting drunk. So the point is not to get drunk. So that would be a, keep the, mind, the, uh, the Muslim clearer. concern is not to get drunk. According to one of the interpretations, yes. That's why interpret, I I can hmm. drink this if I don't
0: get drunk. It's open uh, for various interpretations. Ah, Okay, so that would be from the Bosnian perspective. Jana, from the Czech Republic, now that would be the West Slavic zone. I never realized this. We got South Slavs, East Slavs, and West Slavs. Russia is just so vodka-centric. I mean, you can't be social in Russia without having a bottle of vodka around, it seems like. Is it similar in the Czech Republic?
3: Well, in the Czech Republic, it's uh, not that much about vodka, but we have our uh, Slivovits. Um, Amir was a little bit mentioning that it's like a plum liquor, really pretty strong one, and it was always the tradition that uh, in the villages, among the families, they were picking the different either plums, but really like different uh, fruit trees and making their own schnapps so they can celebrate throughout the whole, whole family.
0: So this is something families are proud of, is their homemade slib Of Of
3: course, yeah, 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 yeah. And
0: what, like Amir was talking about in Bosnia, different fruit flavors.
3: Yeah, 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 definitely, because we either pick the plums, then we pick uh, the apricots, uh, Mm. you pick the apples and make your own uh, traditional family drink, really, from out of all those trees.
0: We're sharing a glass with Jana Hrankova from the Czech Republic and Amir Televicherovich from Bosnia, and we're learning about Slivovitz, Morakia, and other Slavic drinks right now on Travel with Rick Steves. And I know from my travels that there's a ritual when you're drinking of toasting properly and doing the whole, uh, you know, social togetherness by clink, clink, the glass, and so on. Amir, what is the ritual with drinking and toasting in
2: Bosnia? Uh, the clicking and toasting, that's very similar in many cultures. You know, rise right up the hand, you know, like you click the little glasses, you know, like this and mm-hmm. so on. Uh, the only difference is if uh, people are drinking wine, then it's, of course, different kind of glasses. They're drinking beer, different kind of glasses. And if they drink schnapps or rakia, as we know it under that name, original the Turkish word, then it's a very small, uh, mm-hmm. tiny glasses. Uh, do you glasses.
0: sip it or do you throw it down?
2: Traditionally, people over there sip it. However, mm-hmm. it can be used as a medicine sometimes, mm-hmm. especially travaliza, which is a herb brandy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's good for digestion, and mm-hmm. uh, in that case, there would be people with sip it. But traditionally, they try not to do that. No, no, they try. It's not part of the tradition to do that Russian way. They don't do a Russian way like a bottoms up, you know. Idea is to make it last as long as as possible. Okay. Same as with ah, coffee. Okay. That's why the coffee to go. So when you
0: toast yeah. somebody, uh, mm-hmm. what what would you say in Bosnian and how would you translate it? Well, depends. If there are two persons
2: like you and me here, which would mm-hmm. be živio, which means long live to each Givio. other. Yeah. If it's uh, there, there are more persons, then the plural is like for Long the, live. Long live for everybody. In uh, a lot of Slavic countries, we hear nastrav. Yeah. Do you say that in Bosnian also? Yeah, that's interesting. Nastravlje, we say when somebody sneezes. <laughs>
0: Oh, let's say "Gesundheit" so yeah, to, yeah, you, to yeah, your yeah. health. So, so, exactly. exactly to your health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So nazdraví, so when, nazdraví you s- when you sneeze, but when you drink, uh, you say "Long live." Yes, "Živěli, long live." Yes, long live. Jana." In Czech Republic, tell us about the uh, ritual of drinking.
3: Well, we say in the Czech Republic we say nazdraví. and when we are drinking, the the main ritual uh, I would say would be the meaningful eye contact when you are clinking the glass, and it could be with either uh, the the French naps or with beer, of course, because the the main drink in, in my country would be beer. So you always hold the glass uh, and you have to have a meaningful eye contact with the person opposite to you. So
0: not just eye contact, meaning meaningful what eye contact. Meaning, what I, does, I does that mean? Well,
3: really concentrate into the eyes of, the, of the person, you, person in, next to you. Definitely. And then usually we just drink it all in once.
0: So you just throw it down. Yeah, completely. Uh, so it's a sort of a <laughs> communion together. We're going to s- take this. That's, the that's closer up. to Russian, weight. <laughs> that is closer yes, to the Russian. Yeah, way.
3: And, and yeah, do you, yeah, what yeah. do you say? We say, to your health.
0: To your health. Okay, nazdraví. This is Travel with Rick Steves, nazdraví. We're talking with Jana Frankova from Czech Republic and Amir Talabacherovich from Bosnia. I mentioned in Russia, a big part of uh, the uh, drinking culture is also the pickles, all the different kinds of pickles that they like to have with their vodka. Amir was talking about the salty cheese and salty uh, sausage. How about in the Czech Republic? What would you eat with your drinks?
3: Well, it depends. If we would uh, uh, have some beers, which is kind of like the the main tradition, uh, going to the pub and having a, a beer together, we have uh, some of the like a beer table, little meals, uh, talking about uh, the pickled cheese or the pickled sausage, for example. So just a little bites to help you along the way through your first, second, tense beer, really, that so, you are So that you similar are to Bosnia, yes. s- salty cheeses and, yeah. and meats. Not Meat. the pickles. Sausage. So, huh? Sausages, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, pickles could be there too, uh, okay. if you want to enrich the... Now, Amir, it's table.
0: late at night. You've been having a lot of fun, a lot of long live. What's some sort of songs you would end up singing together? Uh
2: Relaxed songs, not dancing songs that you need to have a special voice, uh, voice so to sing together, yeah. a voice everybody's together, sort of arm in arm and singing a blues song, yeah, not necessarily even arm in arm they're just uh, sitting right. or even laying down, you know like in some big cushions, idea to be completely relaxed. There is a type of singing called the Sevdach or Sevdalinka, hmm. like for example, a uh, story uh, back in the seventeenth century about the sad love, you know, hmm. like pre marriages and you know, uh like, most of them comes from the Ottoman times about how the uh, girl from the poor classes, you know, were forced to get married to uh, somebody from the rich classes, you know, and uh, she's in love with someone else, of course, but I'm simplifying this, you mm-hmm. know, like a description of that, girl is stretching through a 10 minute song, you know, mm-hmm. like it's not just a simple one. Or simply description. When you say emotional, it doesn't mean only male, female, you know, relations. It can be also a dedication to some beautiful mountain, mm. description of beautiful river, beautiful animals, you know, so they're kind of ecological
0: songs, you know, to. And Jana, when you've had your friends together, you've had a beautiful night, whether you're drinking beer or the, what is it called, the, the Slivovitz? Slivovitz. What might you sing in the Czech Republic when you're well, nostalgic?
3: It, it would be very similar to what uh, Amir was talking about. We have a lot of songs uh, about our country but after you start drinking and after a few shots uh, very often people uh, get nostalgic about their love and uh, the love struggles old love
0: songs mm. traditional mm-hmm. or modern
3: traditional really the like same a traditional songs your folk sing. songs yes
0: what's an example of one
3: kde tady mean? byla taková panenka která by mě chtěla Oh, I wish I, I have that beautiful lady with me.
0: I can just see right now in some of my favorite little pubs in, in Prague. And if you happen to throw it down, and especially if you're hanging out with some hard-drinking Russian friends, I guess, you might have a hangover in the morning. Mm-hmm. Amir, what are the local remedies for a hangover?
2: Oh, there are many. There is excellent soup in Bosnia. Still, you can find it anywhere in Sarajevo, my hometown. Uh, it's known by that excellent one. It's called base soup. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of, your, uh, very, it's very thick soup, so thick that you can use it as a starter and you can use it as a main meal. So you mm-hmm. put some uh, sour cream there, you put some uh, okra, small pieces of okra, small pieces, uh, very small pieces of lamb and a few more vegetables and you cook it all together and then in the end you'd add vinegar mm-hmm. there and they, it works against hangover. So you did that uh,
0: in the night after drinking or in the morning? In the morning, mostly. In the morning. Jana, when you wake up in the morning and you realize I just drunk too much, what do you do the hangover
3: well we are saying the way you ended up the evening the same way you should start the next day so it's either having uh, uh, one more beer in the morning or one more shot to get you over the hangover or we have a garlic soup
0: Garlic soup garlic or, soup. or, another, shot garlic, or <laughs> another shot of brandy. Or another shot of Slivovitz. <laughs> what works better yes. for you?
3: Slivovitz, definitely. Really? You, yes. The way you ended up? It, the way it you will put up. you back on your on your feet again.
0: Wow. This is Travel with Rick Steves. we giving some practical tips if you want to go local in Bosnia or in the Czech Republic. We've been joined by Amir Telebacerović from Bosnia and Jana Hrankova from the Czech Republic. Na zdraví. And in Bosnia, we say... "živeli, živeli, Long live. Long live,
4: yeah.
0: Next up, it's vodka with a side of pickles. Author Lisa Dickey tells us about the changes she observed in Russia over the past 20 years. It's travel with Rick Steves. ¶¶ Russia was just beginning to recover from the collapse of the Soviet Union when journalist Lisa Dickey first took a cross-country train trip in 1995. She and a photographer friend stopped in small cities and towns all along the way to meet and interview everyday Russians. Ten years later, she returned to visit with many of the same people to see how their lives had changed. She retraced her route once again in 2015 and discovered that Cold War sentiments were starting to reappear. Dickie's book, Bears in the Streets, Three Journeys Across a Changing Russia, shows a very personal side of a country we hear about so often in the news these days. Lisa, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Bears in the Streets, what an amazing experience. Now, did you think about doing this when you took your first trip back in 1995, that you would do successive trips? Or how did that idea come to you to compare Russia every decade for three decades?
1: It actually didn't occur to me at all on the first trip. I really thought that first trip was a -a once-in-a-lifetime trip. And once I'd finished it, I thought, well, that was really amazing. And I went about my life for the next nine years. And then I had gone with a photographer named Gary Matoso. And I called him nine years later, and I said, hey – you know, I'm kind of curious how these people are doing now, like 10 years later. We should really go back and do this whole trip again and see if we can track them down and see how they're doing. But I will say that even before I finished that second trip, I thought I'm going to want to come back again 10 years later in 2015 and see how everybody's doing.
0: So lay out the actual trip. I normally think of going across Russia from St. Petersburg all the way to Vladivostok, but you went in the other direction. Tell us about just the structure of the trip.
1: So we started in Vladivostok. We actually had to decide before we took the trip. This is Gary and myself. He knew that he wanted to photograph a lighthouse that was on the very far tip of Vladivostok, which is about as far as you can go in southeastern Russia before, you know, falling into North Korea or China. So our choice was either to go east to west or west to east. And we chose to start with Vladivostok and end up in St. Petersburg because we thought psychologically it would be easier to get closer and closer to the European side of Russia. So we started in Vladivostok. We spent about a week. We interviewed the people who take care of that lighthouse. And then we just started making our way westward and we took the Trans-Siberian and we would stop in towns and cities where we had managed to track down somebody who knew somebody who might be able to offer us a bed for the night. Or there were a couple places where we went. We knew we wanted to go out on Lake Baikal and interview The research scientists who study the lake, we knew we wanted to stop in Birabijan, which is the capital of the Jewish autonomous region set up by Joseph Stalin in the late 20s and early 30s. So there were a couple of destinations we knew we would go to regardless. And then the rest of it, we literally just made up as we went along, depending on who we could find to crash with.
0: And you stopped at 11 or 12 cities across the country?
1: Yes, 11 cities. 11
0: cities, and it took you three months on the journey, 5,000 miles. You said 6,000 vodka shots. I've been in Russia (laughs) to know that you can't really socialize without drinking vodka, but that works out to 60 a day. I think that's a a bit of (laughs) an exaggeration, but maybe not much. It was
1: maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, (laughs) yeah, but that's what it felt like. Let's put it that way. That
0: really is an interesting dimension of traveling in Russia is just getting cornered by aggressively friendly people and having (laughs) to drink vodka. Did you have that experience?
1: What is funny, people, I think, especially in the United States, don't tend to think of Russian people as particularly friendly, but they're tremendously friendly and tremendously generous. And, you know, we just found this time and again where... We'd, you know, call in advance to a person and say, oh, well, so-and-so knows so-and-so who knows you, you know, we're coming to your town, Hmm. you know, do you have a place to stay? Can we interview you? Can we see you? And, you know, they'd show up at the train station at 3 a.m. waving a little American flag and then Hmm. have us in and then feed us a lot of food and then we'd drink vodka, we'd talk. It was always just the incredible generosity that we were shown to complete strangers, you know, just going across the country and dropping in on people, essentially. You
0: know, I've got this sad image of Russia after the end of the Soviet Union and there was a lot of uh, depression and there was a lot of solitary escapist vodka drinking. Did you notice the vodka culture changing over the 20 years that you traveled there?
1: It definitely has changed. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things have happened. I mean, you're absolutely right. In the mid-1990s, Russia was a really chaotic place, especially economically. The value of the ruble had fallen and people had lost their life savings and they just really weren't sure what was coming next. And there was a lot of trepidation about what the future held. 2005, the economy had gotten a lot better. People were feeling more confident about their futures. People had a little bit more money to spend and there started to become trends where instead of people having a birthday party or a party, and then they would just plop down, you know, three bottles of vodka on the table, suddenly people had a little bit more money. They might buy some Italian wine, or they might buy some beer, Budweiser beer or something, Mm -hmm. you know, they would buy something like that. And then this trip has been really interesting to see young people seem to drink less than their predecessors had. I had several people talk with me about that. I talked to a number of young people one guy said to me, you know, our, my friends don't smoke. It's considered really uncool to smoke. A lot of them go and they work out at health clubs. And this is really a real trend to me on this latest trip where the younger generation is practicing better health habits. That's a very
0: insightful dimension of your book, Bears in the Streets, is that you're able to look at Russian society, not from a sightseeing point of view, but from a people point of view, how people are living their lives in 1995, 2005, and 2015. When you think of the the big picture, you you visited friends in the same 11 cities, the same people, in three successive trips over 20 years. What are some of the sweeping conclusions you can make about how Russian society is changing? Because that right there, more um, hygiene, more self-respect, less smoking and drinking, and, and more industriousness or more hope, that's pretty positive, isn't it?
1: Yes. So certainly the health thing, you know, it was it was always funny to me where I'd be talking with, especially as I say, young people and they'd say, Oh, come over. I'm going to, you know, I'll make some dinner. It's it's all organic. It's all from my, you know, my parents' garden. Hmm. And, you know, it's GMO-free. Ah. And just, you know, hearing Russians say GMO-free was just like, wow. 1995, I, not that would, ever they wouldn't have of thought of that at all. No, you really wouldn't. You really wouldn't have thought about that. And it's also fair to say that, you know, we weren't really talking about GMO-free all that much in 1995 either. But it's just so funny when you are absent from a place and then you come back and you think, wow, this just yeah. feels really different. This feels really unusual. So there was certainly that. There was also, you know, I felt like younger people seemed to be a little bit more ambitious in a business sense. They seemed a little bit more ambitious in terms of a lot of people are studying English. A lot of people are studying Chinese. And my impression before, especially in the mid-90s, was people would study those languages if they had a very specific reason why they needed to do it for their work, but not necessarily otherwise. And now it seems like people understand that sort of to get ahead to become a citizen of the world, these are languages that they need to Hmm. know. And so everywhere I'd look, I actually took a picture in uh, Chita, which is a city sort of on the cusp of the Russian Far East in Siberia. But there was this big banner across a building by the train station. And it used to be those banners would say things like, long live the communist revolution or something like that. But instead, this banner was stretched across and it was like, learn English now, you know, or start Hmm. your own business. And it just always struck me that that is kind Hmm. of the way it goes now.
0: We're exploring Russia right now on Travel with Rick Steves with Lisa Dickey, the author of Bears in the Streets, Three Journeys Across a Changing Russia. Her website is lisadickey.com. Lisa, when you think about things changing, were people comfortable talking with you? You know, because in the 1990s, just after the end of the Cold War, and and they had grown up with all sorts of propaganda about how evil and imperialistic Americans were, Uh, and then, of course, now we've got our current uh, challenges with the Russian government. Generally, did people judge you by our government and their propaganda, or did they treat you as an individual? And did that change over the three trips?
1: So there's two questions there, and they're both great questions. I'll say to the first one, you know, definitely it changed over the three trips. I would say in 1995, there were more people who were initially a little bit wary about talking to me. You know, here's this American journalist showing up. The Soviet Union had only collapsed four years earlier, and there were a few people who definitely were nervous about talking to me. In 2005, that seemed to have really gone away. People seemed to feel a lot freer about it. And, you know, granted, they also had met me before. They knew me. They felt comfortable with me. Mm-hmm. And then in 2015, it seems like for a couple of people, it had come a little bit back around to, all right, maybe this isn't so mm-hmm. great anymore. Because I do think that the relations between our countries have come a little bit back around to feeling more like a Cold War mm-hmm. relationship again. And so there was definitely some of that.
0: Because I remember back in communist times, the people that were most comfortable talking with me, it seemed were the people who had chosen that when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. I mean, these were the bottom rung of society where they could be free. They would never get a great Mm -hmm. job, but they were easy to talk to a tourist, whereas people who wanted to get somewhere in society were more cautious and guarded.
1: I mean, there was definitely that feeling in the Soviet era, and I actually spent time in Moscow during the Soviet era in the late 80s, too. I don't write extensively about that in the book, but, you know, definitely at that point, I think people were extremely wary, particularly yeah. if they were going to be speaking to a journalist. From Has the, West. the
0: economy uh, been markedly improving? I mean, do people have more uh, interesting and fun toys these days? Did do they, do they feel like they're enjoying life a little more?
1: I would say that between 1995 and 2005, absolutely that happened. When I went back in 2005, people had credit cards and they'd been able to travel abroad and they, you know, had started purchasing things for themselves that they couldn't afford in the 90s. Mm. But, you know, when I went in 2015, when I got to Vladivostok in September of 2015... The ruble had lost half of its value between January of 2014 and September of 2015. And the reality of that meant that people were still getting their same salary in the same number of rubles, but they can't now afford to buy imported goods because now those goods are priced twice at what they had been a year and a half earlier. I talked to one couple where the guy had bought his wife a new car. And it was an imported car. And so it was a dollar-based loan. Mm. So he takes out this dollar-based loan. And 18 months later, he now owes twice as much on the car than he did when he bought it. And there's nothing he can do about that. I mean, How is he going to sell it? Nobody wants to take over that loan. So it's been really bad for the Russians um, Mm -hmm. recently in the last couple of years because the oil prices have fallen and because of the sanctions that were imposed after everything that happened in Ukraine. So that definitely has taken its toll on the ordinary Russian person's pocketbook.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lisa Dickey, and her book is Bears in the Streets, talking about three trips across Russia, visiting the same cities and the same people, once in 1995, once in 2005, and most recently in 2015. Lisa, I understand you're gay, and uh, this was uh, obviously a concern of you when you're traveling through Russia because Putin and Russia are openly um, homophobic, and uh, it could actually be dangerous to be a gay traveler in Russia How did that change, and what were your concerns, and what was your actual experience?
1: You know, in the first trip in 1995, I didn't really come out to anybody because I thought, you know, what's the point of that? I'd just rather not do that. It just seemed like something that was not necessary. The 2005 trip, I also did not. It was very easy to deflect questions because people would ask if I was married, and I would say no. Now I am married. And so I thought, well, am I going to just flat lie to people? And I decided I didn't really want to do that. And the fear that I had, obviously, was, you know, now since 2013, there's been a law that was passed by the Russian government outlawing, propagandizing being gay. And that can be interpreted pretty much any way the police or the government want to interpret it. It's very, very vague,
0: so if you just had a photograph of you and your wife having a beautiful moment and you wanted to share that with somebody, that could be perceived as promoting being gay yes, and you could actually promoting be homosexuality
1: and I think it's probably intentionally left vague so that they can do whatever they feel like they need to do in order to sort of quash people openly talking about being gay or openly huh. you know being gay. But I just I made the decision that, you know what, I'm just going to sort of see what happens. I'll talk to these people. These people have been meeting with me now for 20 years and I'll see what happens. And the one response I got more than any other was, I'm okay with this, but don't tell anybody else. Yeah. Which was really interesting to me because everybody was very concerned about what might happen to me when other people found out. But, you know, the vast majority of people I talked to didn't seem to mind. It's basically don't ask, don't tell. We don't really want to know. Don't be public about it. They certainly don't want anybody out marching in the streets and waving rainbow flags. That is really it's not in the Russian character so much to do that, I think, anyway. But it makes people really uncomfortable.
0: Well, they've probably learned you don't... People who stick their heads up got to get used to seeing their own blood.
1: There certainly is that, yeah. Yeah. And it's really unfortunate. And that law is just really Mm. odious. And there has been a lot of backlash against gay people and openly gay people in particular.
0: But now you did have some gay friends in Novosibirsk, right?
1: I did. I had some gay people that I wrote about and I had written about them in 1995 and 2005 and 2015. And I had a lengthy conversation with one of them where he basically just said... I'm fine. I'm content. I don't need to come out to people. I don't want to come out to people. It's my own business. And, you know, me with my own own experience and my own biases, I kept saying to him, but don't you think you'd be happier if you could just be open and just be free about it? And until he finally just got kind of, kind of annoyed with me and just sort of said, you know, it doesn't always have to be exactly the way it's good for you.
0: You know, that's probably something you get when you grow up in a society that's not free or that's got some sort of a tyranny over you. Is you just... Americans, freedom is woven into our DNA. And for them, survival is probably woven into their DNA.
1: I mean, look, to really understand Russian society, you really have to go back and not only understand the last 25 years of post-Soviet Russia, you really have to go back and understand what it was like for 70 years in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the only way to really understand Some of these characteristics that the Russian people in general have, and it's always dangerous to generalize too much about a people. But as you say, there's not a long history of First Amendment rights and we should be able to say and do and convene Mm -hmm. and, you know, behave in the way that we want. And so it's naive to think that, OK, the Soviet Union fell and now it's Russia and now they're free and now they're going to start behaving like us.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lisa Dickey about her book, Bears in the Streets, reporting on three separate trips across Russia, visiting the same people in 11 cities between 1995 and 2015. You know, Lisa, I was impressed by how immobile the society was. I mean, I don't think I could go to 11 cities in the United States over 20 years and find the same people in the same spot. Is it a less mobile society?
1: I was less surprised by it because, you know, in in the Soviet era, it was very difficult for people to Mm -hmm. move from one place to another. I, I remember, you know, in the late 80s, talking to some Russian friends that I had in Moscow and saying, literally, I could put everything I own in my car and drive to any city or any town in the United States and just rent a place and just live there. And they just couldn't believe it. They Mm. just didn't believe that that was true (laughs) because there was the whole system of you have to ask for permission and you have to file the paperwork and you have to have a job that's already secured and all of that. And they just found it really extraordinary that that was a possibility.
0: Something that really moved me in your book, and I, I was surprised by this, reading through the book and looking at the photographs, just the joy of the people, the same people pictured in 1995, in 2005, and in 2015. It just really struck me that real people are staying put in one spot with their loved ones, doing their best to live well and live happily. I just found it really moving. It humanizes a part of the world that we rarely even think about.
1: I think that we have so many misconceptions about what Russian people are like. I think that our depictions of Russian people in, you know, pop culture here have been very one sided. They tended to be the Mm -hmm. bad guys in the movies for a long time and they tend to be rather one dimensional, I think. And, you know, the reality is, is I've had so much just stupid fun with a lot of the people (laughs) that I went and spent time with, you know going and teaching them how to play poker. And so we'd play poker or go into a karaoke bar or whatever it is that we did, you know, going to the banya or... They're just a really fun, loving people. It's just that they don't open themselves up easily to people that they don't know. Mm-hmm. And that translates for Americans who are used to walking down the street and it's like, oh, hey, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? And if you get to a culture like Russia where people don't do that, they don't really pay attention to each other on the street. It can feel very cold and it can feel very unfriendly. But the reality is, is Russians are tremendously friendly but not to people that they don't have any connection or any tie to.
0: Now I was going to ask you, what's the biggest misconception Americans have about Russians? And it's probably exactly that. We can uh, judge think them it is superficially that, yeah. and by media and, and you know by headlines, but uh, you've proven it. I mean, there's nothing like actually going there and, and humanizing people that we could better understand. And there's a, a, a lot yes. of uh, a lot of joy just in doing that.
1: And, you know, Rick, you asked me a question earlier that I didn't get to answer. You asked me if they're able to separate our government from the people, Mm -hmm. you know, from Americans. And I wanted to say absolutely. And that was a really fascinating thing, particularly on this trip when Russians are very unhappy with the American government and they took great care. You know, I'd have somebody just absolutely chew my ear off about how horrible it is what we're doing and, you know, with the sanctions and in their opinion, butting in and what's going on in Ukraine and all of this kind of thing. They would, you know, go on and on, and then they would say, but listen, I'm so glad you're here, and I really want you to feel welcome. Let's break bread together, and let's spend time talking, and I'm so glad you're you're here mm. and listening.
0: So regardless of who's in the White House or who's in the Kremlin, people to people, that's where the truth lies.
1: Yes, it really is.
0: Lisa Dickey, thanks so much for sharing with us this experience, and uh, hey, is coming up. Are you going back? <laughs> Absolutely.
1: <laughs> All right, Definitely. well, I let's talk wait. again. <laughs> Great.
0: Thanks, Rick. Okay, thanks so much. Bye-bye. Up next on Travel with Rick Steves, Chris Santella toasts the new year with his book, 50 Places to Drink Beer Before You Die. And we'll take your calls on your favorite brews at 877-333-7425. The New Year's traditions of Scotland are just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. But first, Ben Franklin said that beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. Chris Santella would agree. He's recently added 50 places to drink beer before you die to his series of 50 Best Places guidebooks. Chris joins us now to raise a pint around the globe. Good to have you back, Chris. A great pleasure, Rick. When I think of beer and travel, it really is integral to a lot of cultures and to a lot of people's travel dreams. I just love the stories of how Europe might beat is Europe and, and how people are so into the beer in Europe and Spain. Every region has its own beer that people are loyal to. Of course, you got the pubs in England. I remember at the end of the Cold War, all over Eastern Europe, countries were losing a lot of their workforce to go to the West for work, but the people in the Czech Republic, they didn't go for work in the West because they couldn't imagine living without their good Czech beer on tap, consumed right there. I remember recently I was in Belgium, and it seems like half of the travelers in Belgium were making a quick four-day beer pilgrimage from the East Coast of the United States just to enjoy those great beers in Belgium. And you've collected 50 places, to have that sort of passion for beer spliced into your travels. What was it like putting this anthology of beer lovers' reports together? It was
5: thirsty work, but someone had to do it, Rick. I bet. Uh, it, it was great fun. I've been a fan of craft beer for a long time. I still remember my first craft beer was a Anchor Steam in San Francisco in 1985, and up until that point, I'd only tasted Budweiser and Miller mm. and... And admittedly, at that time, I didn't think it tasted that good, but it certainly tasted different. But mm-hmm. my tastes adapted and uh, living in uh, in the Bay Area and then living up in Portland now, I certainly have been surrounded by a, a lot of great brewers. And it's been interesting to see. One of the things that came out in uh, researching this book is that I come to think of craft brewing as being kind of a West Coast thing and then maybe being, a, you know, a little bit of an East Coast, New England thing. But... Craft brewing is taking off all over the United States. And in fact, it's taking off all over the world, even in places that maybe had a very traditional beer culture. Mm -hmm. But you're seeing a lot of smaller brewers Mm -hmm. brewing different interesting styles in Dublin, in Vienna, in Prague, all over the world, uh, springing up in uh, Australia, New Zealand, Mm -hmm. Hanoi, The list goes on and on, but everyone has embraced the idea of better beer and more interesting beer and and making it on a more local level, I guess, in keeping with our whole trend towards artisan foods in a a general manner. Yeah,
0: organic artisan food, slow food, all of that, uh, zero-kilometer meals. I find that in these craft beer centers or little tiny local breweries, They're personality-driven. I mean, these are local guys that love what they do, and they're really welcoming. And as I'm researching my guidebooks, I'm finding that some of the most interesting pubs are the ones that are serving their craft beer right there. I love the statistic that you have in your book. Uh, I think you mentioned in 1984, there were 50 beer makers in the entire United States of America, and today there's over 4,000. That really speaks volumes right there. And Probably most of those 4,000 breweries would love to have you drop by and, and check it out. What is it about visiting a craft brewery?
5: A lot of craft and regional brewers are realizing that doing tours and tastings could be the most effective way of advertising their wares and getting people excited about it. So I think a lot more are now incorporating the idea of a tour or tasting into their program. Sierra Nevada, for example, both in in Chico and uh, in Asheville, North Carolina, where they opened up their second brewery. They have very elaborate tours, as does Anchor. You have great tours uh, down in San Diego at Stone. So it's becoming a very big part of the overall experience for the smaller brew pubs with a little bit of planning There, they can often accommodate you, but it might take a little bit more planning and maybe a call beforehand Mm -hmm. or showing up at a certain time when the brewer's working. But uh, most people are happy to share what they're they're doing. As you said earlier, people are excited about it and they want to share their passion.
0: And it really is not just limited to a few cities that were trendy that way. I mean, you mentioned that uh, there's two Portlands in this country, Portland, Oregon and Portland, Maine, and they're both great craft beer scenes.
5: Both cities have a a lot going on in that realm. Uh, I was just over in Portland, Maine a few weeks ago, and I think they're up to about 14 or 15 small breweries there and some great tap houses that uh, focus on the the local wares. And in uh, my Portland, Oregon, I think we're up into the 60s now. Mm. I was saying to someone the other day, I don't know how all these places... Mm stay in business, but I, <laughs> I go buy them, and they yeah. always have people in them. So. Well, people and a, lot of, and a lot of people do come and do beer tourism. I talked to several couples yeah. the other day at one of the local breweries, and they were making the rounds, and I gave them a few of my behind-the-scenes favorites, and hopefully they were able to visit those.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Chris Santella, and Chris has written a book called 50 Places to Drink Beer Before You Die. Your book is a collection of stories and recommendations and articles from 50 people who really are into the whole beer culture, mostly the craft beer culture. Let's talk about Beervana. Where are some beautiful places that you encountered that just make sense to sit and enjoy a good beer because of the sense of place?
5: There's a place called the Jigger Inn right on the 17th hole of the old course at St. Andrews and uh mm. i i love to play golf and i have made the pilgrimage to st andrews a few times that is certainly one of those after the round of golf places to have a beer in, that stands out for me amongst the many 19th holes that i've been in also is rumored to have a ghost but i did not experience mm-hmm. any encounters with the ghost during my stay Another place that speaks to me in that same uh, way is the porch at a little fishing lodge on the Henry's Fork River in Idaho. It's called the Trout Hunter, and you can have your local Idaho or Bozeman beer, and you can watch the sunset in the mountains behind and start to see the trout coming up to feed on whatever sort of bugs are popping up on the river. So for a fly fisherman that's that's near the top of the
0: list, mm. I would say. For me, a lot of it is drinking the local beer in the local place. I don't like to drink a Belgian beer outside of Belgium as much as I like to drink it right there in Belgium. And when I'm in Ireland, I, I really feel like a Guinness. I'm going to have a stout, whether it's a Murphy's or a Guinness, uh, whenever I'm in Ireland. But I, I don't really order it outside of that. And when I'm in the Czech Republic, it's, it's going to be a, a Pilsner. What's your sense? Uh, what, what did you learn about that as, as you put your anthology together?
5: Those are several great examples of where certain beer styles, uh, the traditional beer styles, still have a lot of strength. Uh, Pilsner Kell is certainly the main beer in in Prague and in the Czech Republic. And the tour there, we spoke about tours a little bit earlier, they also offer a wonderful tour. The brewery is a little bit outside of Prague, about 40 miles away, but mm-hmm. in, within easy reach. And I'd say that... Even though the Pilsner Raquel is still going to be the the beer I think a lot of people are going to seek out, you are seeing some more American-style brewers popping up in places like Prague and Vienna, brewing pale ales and India pale ales and porters. It does seem if there's one beer style that's spreading across the world right now, it is the India pale ale, which is a a little stronger in terms of alcohol content, a little hoppier or more bitter beer. But uh, I think first started coming to Mm. uh, prominence among craft brewers in the West Coast of the United States and is really spreading all over the world now.
0: You know, when you go to Italy, a lot of people just check out from a beer appreciation point of view because this is the land of wine. Italy has a few big breweries that are just kind of forgettable beer, but now they've got their craft beers in Italy so you'd even have hoppier and stronger beers in a place like Italy, IPAs. In
5: Italy now, I think there's up to almost 600 brewers, which mm-hmm. was astounding to me and I actually went and checked that fact in several different places to make sure that that was mm-hmm. accurate, but it is. And what you find, especially up north, people are making beer from very non-traditional ingredients parts of northern Italy, you'll see lots of chestnuts, and mm. there are a number of chestnut beers being made that I think first may not be appealing to all tastes, but certainly something different. And I think that the Italian brewers have been saying, okay, we want to brew,
0: but we're going to brew what we want to brew mm. using what we have. Chris Santella is our guest today on Travel with Rick Steves with recommendations for 50 places to drink beer before you die. Chris has also edited collections of 50 places for outdoor adventures, adventures like fly fishing, skiing, camping, and golf. Cheryl joins us on the line now from Indianola in Washington State. Hi, Cheryl.
4: Thanks for taking my call. I live in the northwest, uh, just outside of Seattle, where there are just dozens of great craft breweries here. And at the end of October, my husband and I will be in the Netherlands on the northeast border uh, visiting A friend who used to live here, she married a Dutch guy, and they said it's the perfect time for um, being there because of Oktoberfest, and they said there's some good places near the border, and I'm wondering if you have any recommendations. The town that they're in is called Albergen, and it's on the northeast border, maybe 10 miles from Germany.
5: Well, one thing I, I might mention, and again, some people play a little loose with the dates, but... Oktoberfest, at least in Germany, really occurs in late September. It's kind of a a bit of a misnomer, Mm -hmm. and I think it's generally from around September 18th or 20th to October 3rd or 4th, give or or
0: take
4: a few Ah. days.
0: I think the rule is it starts on the 3rd Saturday in September.
4: So there must be still some good places to drink beer there, even after the festival.
0: Oh, Oktoberfest is all year long. If you go to a place <laughs> like Munich, I mean, you just the Germans love their beer halls, and you've got the um, conviviality. That's the main thing, I think. You've got just you know music and tradition and people sharing big tables and beers that are only sold by the one liter uh, mug, Ein Mass. It's called. That's the way to tap into the personality of the town. So. You know, you ask at your hotel or at the tourist office, is there any festival going on? In the fall, there's a lot of different sort of harvest festivals, a lot of uh, beer festivals that are, you know, sort of the beer equivalent of the wine festivals, but you just got to be able to know what's happening as you're traveling and remember that if you go to a good beer hall, it's a festival every night.
4: So I should ask locally when I get there. I didn't know if there was a um, special beer that's known for Western Germany guess what I'll do is just ask when oh, we get there. Oh, you
0: know, I've that's i just been over there for two months, and I think Chris might uh, add on to this, but I favor the local beer on tap. Local bartenders favor the local beer. It just feels right if all else is equal to drink the local beer. What's your sense of that as you travel around, Chris? I
5: completely agree with that. I, I really appreciate beer on draft much more than in bottles. I think it's more, I think the brewer might use the term, it's more alive. You know you're getting very fresh product that way generally. I don't have any experience in the particular region that you're traveling to, but I know that in Germany, in a general way, if you're looking for something a little darker and a little stronger, uh, a Marzen-style beer is going to be something that I think you'll find appealing, and that would be something that a lot of the local folks might drink. If you were looking for something that's a little bit on the lighter side of the scale, perhaps a Weiss beer or a Helles beer, which are both uh, wheat-style beers.
4: We love the darker beers. Uh, we're really used to those here, and I also agree that the local beers on tap uh, would be something I'd be more interested in.
0: Right. And then if you, uh, your key word in Germany for the dark beer is dunkel. So remember, Helles is light and dunkel is dark. Ha- have fun, Cheryl, on your beer-drinking trip. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Thank you so much. I can't wait for it. Thanks a lot.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Chris Santella. His book is 50 Places to Drink Beer Before You Die. And Chris, what's one last example you learned putting your book together that you could share with us? The story of craft beer in Birmingham, Alabama was
5: very interesting to me. There was a point in time when there was a law in the books that didn't allow beer that was over 6% alcohol volume, and it didn't allow beer in 22-ounce bottles or larger, which is exactly, you're speaking about most craft beers. But I talked to a guy there named Stuart Carter who had moved from Scotland to be in Alabama, and he found some people like himself who liked beer, and they lobbied the legislature over several years and eventually got the laws changed, and now you have a real booming beer scene in Alabama in general. Birmingham has at least four or five great breweries You also have quite a few breweries in Huntsville up north, so uh, craft beer has come to Alabama in a a big way, thanks to a few
0: caring citizens who felt like Alabama deserved good beer, too. Democracy in action. Thank goodness. Wherever you go, you can find uh, the latest in the craft beer revolution. Chris Santella, author of 50 Places to Drink Beer Before You Die, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, happy travels and happy appreciating beer.
5: Thanks to you, Rick. Cheers.
0: Edinburgh rings in the new year with one of the biggest street parties in the world. Ken Hanley and Anne Doig remind us right now that there are plenty of fun Scottish traditions to help you properly welcome the new year. Ken, Anne, thanks for stopping by.
6: You're very welcome. Thank nice you for having, thanks for having us. Are
0: you looking forward to New Year's in Edinburgh? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. How do you celebrate New Year's Eve in Edinburgh?
7: Uh, Very traditionally. I know we have what's said to be the biggest street party in the world. But, you know, if we're going for tradition, which I still do and Anne still does, then you make sure the house is clean. (laughs) So the house, in other words, has got to be clean. And you make sure that you've got enough drink for your friends and things like that. People go first footin'. And to go first-footing properly, you have to have a piece of black coal, a wee piece of cake, and a wee bottle of whiskey. What's first-footing? It goes, you go to friends, you just tap a door. You go visiting, and they're not going to turn you away. Absolutely not. And I think if your first-footer, traditionally in Scotland, is tall, dark, and handsome, that means that you're going to have a year of good luck.
6: It's quite interesting. It has to be dark, and I wonder if anyone knows why it has to be a dark person, dark here, it dates back to the attacks by the Vikings the blonde, tall Vikings if you were blonde you might be a threat so it had to be a dark person and you open at the strike of midnight you open your front door and rush through and open the back door so you're welcoming in the new year and letting the old year out so there's all these traditions that we adhere to. <laughs> wow. Now, is there something that is like a countdown in, in Edinburgh? It's fireworks, really. Yeah. There's a big street party, you see, so they'll be counting down on the stage. There are entertainers and oh, yeah. bands playing. And oh, then yeah. all of a sudden, there's an explosion of fireworks over Edinburgh Castle. But with then
0: the you get down with your neighbours and you open your front door. Absolutely. And you open the back door. Yes.
7: Total strangers can turn up at your door and everyone's welcome. And they come in and you offer a drink, you offer a piece of cake, you have a wee blether, you know, and then That's you move talk. along. And a wee blether
6: is a little talk. A wee, a wee blether talk. is a little Aye. talk. <laughs> have a wee blether. And it then. sort of gets known in the community who's got open house. That's what happens. Aye. And if you've got open house, then everyone piles in to visit you. If you're in Scotland on New Year's Eve, it's just like one big
0: open house. People are on the streets, they've got their coal and their drink and their cake and they're going to yep. knock on a stranger's door and celebrate the New Year.
7: Absolutely.
0: We all sing "Old uh, Lang, Lang Syne." Yeah, yeah, you yeah. We that? do. That's oh. Scottish, isn't it? Yes, uh, Robert Burns. That's Robert yeah. Burns. What yeah. What does that mean, "Old Lang Syne"?
6: For the sake of "Old Lang Syne," a lot of different interpretations. I would say for old friends, remembering, remembering friends for for friendship's sake. And you know the song. Sing the song for me. It's
7: uh, all sentimental. A yeah. uh, song, all you know. all acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should all acquaintance, acquaintance be forgot, forgot for the sake of all lang syne? Now, here's the hand, my trusty friend, and here's the hand, oh mine. And it goes on. And, and you're all the, holding hands. It's this inbuilt thing in the Scots that, uh, you know. It's been great to see you. We don't want to see you go, but because you're going away, for the sake of old lang syne, keep that memory, keep everything that heartfelt thing.
0: So Thank that's true. the that's the punchline of the lyric is for the sake, sake of, of
7: old auld lang syne. The and old, sa- the old good sake old, sake old of times
0: For the sake of old lang syne, happy New Year.
7: Happy New Year. All the best to you. Happy New Year, Rick Boy.
4: For old Lang Syne.
5: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wulner. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to KPCC Pasadena for studio help this week. Find more
0: online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.